You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I lead the Talks and Ideas program here. And over the next few months, we'll be bringing you an excellent collection of live recordings from Antidote 2017. It's our brand new festival of art, action and ideas. Today's episode features self-described kindness warrior Kirsten Sherling. She's talking about compassion as activism, and she's introduced by The Guardian's Lucy Clark. It was described as post-apocalyptic, inhumane, lawless, dangerous, a sprawling shantytown, a ramshackle slum oozing toxic mud. It was the Calais Jungle, a refugee camp in the northwest of France that between January 2015 and November 2016 became home to thousands of refugees fleeing violence. But out of this suffering arose a stage, and actors, and Shakespeare, and joy, and hope, thanks to an incredible group of young people who came with their skills of drama and performance and the healing power of creativity. To tell us how this extraordinary story came to be and how every act of compassion is a kind of activism, please make very welcome a kindness warrior, Kirsten Sherling. Thank you. I am a kindness warrior. I was born in Sydney, and through no active choice of my own, I was raised in a country that prides itself on being young and free. I grew up in a kind and loving home, and I was educated at a good school. And I've been gifted with all the privilege a white, middle-class woman might receive in this world. Even now, I've been honoured with the opportunity to fly back from London and speak with you today, when there are millions of people across the world and, and in Australia who would give anything to have their voice heard. But I am here today to share my story. With all its deep ironies and its privilege, it is still just a human journey a journey in pursuit of how I can exist and operate in the world today, a world I feel disillusioned with. So my story starts in 2003, when I shoved some clothes into a crisp and, and slightly too stiff backpack. I thought I would backpack in Europe for a year. It's what every Aussie does. I didn't want to miss out. I even remember joking with my family that I was going off to Europe to find myself. That was almost 14 years ago. I'm still there in the UK. I did my backpacking. I travelled with the carefree curiosity of young Australians. I worked here and there, and I found jobs, usually within my chosen industry of theatre. The jobs were great. They were exhausting. But for the first few years, they served the dual purpose of gaining work experience and funding a travelling habit. I'm not sure if I ever really found myself, but eventually I settled into a salaried job, opened a bank account, rented a room, and suddenly there I was, living in London. Today, I didn't want to get out of bed. Stop the world. I need a break. Where is the nearest emergency exit? The world feels oppressively difficult at the moment, and I feel the weight of it heavy in my heart. I see fear and division everywhere, from the news, social media, and even conversations on the street. Everywhere I'm faced with challenges that don't align with how I feel we should exist on this planet. 
My social media stream is filled with stories that shake me up inside, whether it be about certain politicians or world leaders, referendums, plebiscites, climate change, inequality, or any of the other countless issues which you might choose to take a stand on in the world. It seems it doesn't take much for me to feel a, a sense of injustice, anger, and frustration. And, and I don't know about you, but I carry all these reminders around with me, literally in my pocket. At any one moment, I'm two clicks away from another gut-wrenching news story. And let's not get started on instant notifications. But today, I just want to focus on one of these things, human migration. Or to be more specific, people moving from one place to another, just as I did when I went to London. Yesterday, I scrolled through my Facebook page. My friend had shared a post. It was about a 17-year-old boy named Mohammed. He was holding on to the bottom of a coach carrying tourists from Brussels to France. He didn't have the strength to hold on. And he slipped, crumpling lifeless to the road beneath him. My friend had added that there would be an informal memorial in Calais in a couple of days. My phone beeped this morning, and someone had sent a photograph to a WhatsApp group that I'm part of. It was a picture of two large army green canisters used to carry drinking water to refugees who are sleeping in the woods of northern France. The text said, police have emptied these out and filled them with pepper spray. We can't use them anymore. Does anyone know someone who might be willing to donate some more? Even if I switch off my social media and I refuse to watch the news, I'm sometimes still overwhelmed by the thoughts and the images in my mind. Sometimes I've seen pictures of people in boats crossing to Europe, and I think that I recognize the faces. I wonder if I met them in Calais, in a place called the jungle. Feeling overwhelmed by the complex suffering of the world is not unusual, but it is a privilege. Yes, it is hard and it is exhausting to stay engaged, but the very fact that we are here having this conversation, that the Sydney Opera House can program this festival, is an opportunity afforded to those of us who literally aren't running for our lives. It is an uncomfortable truth, but the question becomes, what do we do with this opportunity that we have? And how do we use it to show up for those without a platform or a voice, for those who might be running low on hope? And I hope what you hear today might plant seeds of action in your heart. I know that there are countless other views, other points of views and experiences, so this will just be one of them. And this is about what I chose to do when I saw the images and read the stories of thousands of people fleeing unimaginable circumstances, arriving in Europe, seeking a better life than what they had left behind. This is about the approximately 12 months I spent working, visiting, and volunteering in the jungle in Calais. And my story hasn't stopped the feelings of helplessness or frustration. In fact, perhaps what I chose to do actually has made it worse. This sense has now become an inherent part of me. But despite this, my story has also become my beacon because it is filled with joy and it is filled with courage. It is about optimism and a humanity, and it is these things which got me out of bed this morning. And although what I have witnessed will leave a dull and constant ache on my heart, they also fill me with brightness and hope, 
and an unwavering belief in the goodness of humans. This is the jungle in Calais. It's named the jungle by the residents who live there because the jungle is not fit for human habitation, only animals. It is so difficult to describe and contextualize the jungle. I, I've literally spent hours talking to friends about it, what I saw, what I felt, and then someone will ask me a question or, or make a comment and I'll realize I haven't managed to capture it at all. It is layers upon layers of complexities, wrapped up in national, European and global politics, further mixed up with polar opposite media narratives, and experienced by thousands of individuals, each with unique perspectives, needs and histories from cultures across the globe. If you can comprehend what I just said, then you might just get a sense of why it's so difficult to talk about. But it is, I think, very important to begin any discussion about the jungle with one particular context. It was born in early 2015 and demolished in November 2016, and throughout this whole period, the jungle was never, ever officially recognized as a refugee camp. Therefore, it remained seemingly out of reach of any of the large humanitarian agencies. They basically risked alienating, alienating European governments that they rely on for funding, so they stayed clear, and this ramshackle, illegal camp grew on its own. And there was no real semblance of any vested interest from French or English governments to actually deal with the situation. Rather, their investments came in the form of a militarized police force, kilometers worth of fencing and barbed wire, and a wall. Uh, yep, England and France have built a three-kilometer wall in Calais. But today, I'm not going to talk about the political situation. That is another whole discussion. Today, I want to talk about people, and I want to talk about stories. The jungle was a place of such vast contradictions. It was the very, very best of humanity, sitting beside the very worst. It brought people together while it ripped them apart. It was horrific and shameful, but it was also an exquisite example of human resilience, community and kindness. My bones hurt with the horror and the sadness of some of the things that I've seen, but when I look back at my time there, the thing that I remember most is laughing with people. So how do I talk about it? How can I truly represent every individual that I met? People from Afghanistan or Sudan, uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and countless other countries. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. And then, of course, there were all the volunteers that arrived, mainly from England, but also France and Europe and, and further afield, to fill this huge gap in aid. People like myself, with, with little or no experience in humanitarian aid, and often we were completely out of our depth. People who gave up time to sort, to collect, to distribute donations, to cook and teach, to fundraise or campaign, and even take governments to court. Grassroots organizations and charities sprung up in the jungle, and they ran on the power of people, compassion and this unstoppable desire to take action in a situation that felt inexcusable. For those that lived in the camp, the residents, Every day brought challenges beyond belief. 
The situation they existed in seemed to seek to dehumanize them in every possible way. Daily challenges included finding uh, access to the most basic of human needs, such as food, water, shelter or clothing, but they also included near-normalized police brutality in the form of beatings, tear gas and rubber bullets. Fascist groups would often gather just outside the camp to protest, and within the jungle itself, conflicts between the various individuals and groups sometimes descended into quite violent confrontations. And huge fires would sometimes break out, spread quickly by the, the strong channel winds and the close living conditions. These fires destroyed hundreds of living spaces, if you could really call them that. And, and with that, the little that anyone might have had, including passports, travel documents, asylum papers, cash. No matter what trauma you faced in your home country or on your journey to Europe, the jungle had its own horrors to add to your story. But despite all this, the human spirit forged through, and with all the chaos of an unofficial, unregulated, transient place, people still managed to build a community. It was a community with streets and houses, restaurants, a nightclub, a gym, a community centre, gardens, a women and children's centre, shops and corner stores, youth centre, churches and mosques, schools, a library, medical centres, information centres, distribution centres, and a theatre. In a space that was smaller than half the size of the botanical gardens, this jungle housed countless people from all over the world. The population changed continuously throughout its time, but when it was demolished and cleared in November last year, a census found that there were 10,000 people living there. This number, by the way, included about 1,000 unaccompanied minors. So, so that's 1,000 children with no adult care or supervision. So how did I find myself there? Well, my work, has always been, my work in theatre has always been about people. Theatre to me is about stories and creativity. I'm passionate about the idea that art should be for everyone and by everyone, regardless of their situation or their background. I'm really interested in finding creative ways of bringing people together. I've done a lot of work in prisons and with homeless people, with sex workers or, or people facing addiction issues. So as the, news fill, as the news in 2015 filled with these stories of refugees crossing to Europe, I watched and read with this ever-growing sense that I needed to do something. This story of migration felt really close to my heart. After all, I had migrated to England freely and with relative ease. And despite the fact that I was born here in Australia, neither of my parents were born here. Each of them had taken a migration journey of their own. So how could I find a way to put my skills to use? How could I not do something? And it was as I was asking myself this question that I heard about some volunteers who had gone to the jungle to begin to build a theater. Well, here was my opportunity. This was my bag. Here was a way I could use my professional skills in a meaningful way. I had a bit of money saved up, and I was working freelance at the time. My contract was four days a week, so I figured that means I've got three days a week to do something. In October of 2015, I boarded the Eurostar in London. It was 6.14 a.m. and it was a Saturday morning. The first stop was Calais. It was one hour on the train. 
I remember looking around at my fellow passengers and wondering who would get off in an hour and who might be heading to a far more holiday-style destination in France. I sat down beside this man. He was probably in his early 20s. We got talking, and it turned out that he was also on his way to the jungle. He'd been there a couple of times before, and he told me he would usually try and take donations in a van, but mainly he would just go there and try and sort out clothes and distribute things to people. As I heard the words tumble out of my mouth as I sat beside him, that, that I was going there to volunteer with some theatre people, we were going to do some theatre, I even remember feeling a flush of shame, even though I really believed in the importance of creativity in art. Here he was talking about clothes and describing people's desperate need for shelter, and I was going to do some drama games. I walked into the jungle. Through the sand dunes and the thick mud, it was a complete hodgepodge of a few donated caravans, some wooden-style structures, but mainly it was just tents and tarps flapping relentlessly in the breeze. The camp was roughly divided into cultural areas, not because it was organized that way, but because naturally you want to share a space with people who speak your language or you share a history with. So I walked through Sudan, I passed Syria, and I turned down what was called Afghan High Street. Lines of young men in dark clothes filed along the edges of the path, trying to avoid the ankle-deep mud. I felt really awkward and conspicuous in my purple rain jacket and waterproof boots. I couldn't help but stare at these flimsy sneakers and rotting shoes that people were wearing. I remember looking down at my shoes and remembering that one of them had a hole in them. That's solidarity, isn't it? I found myself being beckoned into a, a big wooden structure at the end of Afghan High Street. It kind of looked like a field hospital, but when I walked in, it was a restaurant. And somehow it was filled with large benches to sit on, a working kitchen, and a big flashing pink and orange neon sign that said, Welcome! There were probably about 30 people sitting inside, all nursing white plastic cups filled with this sweet chai tea. They were watching a Bollywood film on TV. Yeah, they were watching a Bollywood film on a TV. I was handed a cup of the chai tea, and I, I sat down. The man sitting next to me was from Afghanistan. He was with his son, who was 12 years old. The man's foot was broken from a clash with the police a few nights before, and he had a large lump on the back of his head where he'd met the wrong end of a police baton. He told me he hadn't had any medical treatment. He went on to say that as soon as he can walk properly again, he's going to try for England. His son was worried and scared, and I listened as he explained to him in near-perfect English that they needed to go to the UK, to London, which was where his brother lived, the boy's uncle, a brother who was ready to welcome them with open arms. He told his son that they needed to get out of this jungle, far away from their journey, away from the police. It was time to make a new life, away from the badness they had left behind. I didn't want to pry. Who wants to share what might have been one of the most traumatic events of their lives with a stranger? Instead, I nodded and I sipped my tea, and I wondered where the boy's mother was, and if the fact that she wasn't there had anything to do with the sadness coming out of them. Everyone in the, story had a, uh, sorry, everyone in the jungle had a story. 
And in such a hostile environment, places of welcome and places to be heard, where the individual was respected, they flourished among the distribution points and the overflowing portaloos. This was the magic of the jungle, and this was the spirit of the Good Chance Theatre in the jungle. It was named the Good Chance Theatre after an expression that everyone used when they were talking about the possibility of being able to cross to the UK that night. Tonight, good chance. The idea was that the theatre would offer a good chance no matter what. People could come to the theatre to reflect or forget. It didn't matter. It was a place where freedom of expression was celebrated. It was a place of hope. I just want to read you something that I wrote after one of my first visits to the theatre and to the jungle, actually. It, it's, it's slightly more sweary than what I'm actually going to read today, but I think you'll probably get the idea. I picked my way through the stink of the mud and it literally smells like human feces. It probably is. I don't understand how people can be forced to live this way. It's diabolical and I feel so ashamed. Am I in Europe? I certainly don't feel like I'm somewhere that prides itself on the protection of individual human rights. I literally can't believe what I'm seeing. Today, I walk towards the large white dome. I notice that it pokes up high like an alien spaceship. And this alien spaceship is the Good Chance Theatre, and I feel excited by its weirdness and possibilities. Inside the dome, there was an artist hanging paintings, just exactly the way you might expect to see someone in an art gallery in London. There was this young man from Sudan who was helping her, and I loved the way they were working together to make the space. Three young women from England had created this small circle of benches in the middle, and they performed some kind of puppet show to about six children, all under the age of 10 and sitting in mis-sized donated ski suits. Their mothers stood behind them, wrapped tightly in headscarves and gloves, and, I, and watched on with a mixture of gratitude and deep sorrow. Later on, the puppet show finished, and the women and children disappeared, and I helped drag out this broken table. A group of men gathered to scribble furiously on damp paper. Some drew, some wrote. One of them asked me where I was from, and I told him I was from Australia. He laughed at me and called me Ricky Ponting, and drew a picture of a cricket bat which he coloured in with the Afghan flag. As he gave me the painting, he said, how do I get to Australia? Despite the literal shitty beginning to my day, I spent the rest of the day laughing. We made so much theatre today and drew so many pictures, and I, all I saw was joy and humanity. And today I feel like I really got it. I got why there's a theatre in this place. I, I get why we play drama games. I understand now why there was a children's playground built from precious wood that could, used to, could be used to shelter a family. And I get why everyone is always so desperate to charge their phones and speak to their friends on Facebook. I get the TVs and the snooker tables that mysteriously appear. In such a dehumanizing environment, you do everything you can to be human. So the theatre ran a daily programme of activities, which included everything from yoga and kung fu to writing workshops, movie nights, poetry slams, rehearsed productions, and even a couple of dress-up parties. Volunteer artists would come and run workshops and activities, but the residents of the camp also played a really active role in the programme, and this was really vital to its success. The Dome didn't belong to a bunch of do-gooders from the UK. It was a space for everyone. 
One morning I was sweeping the floor and tidying up after a rather chaotic painting session when a young Ethiopian man approached the dome and he said to me, what, what is this place? I told him it was a theater, it was a place to be creative, he could sing, dance, do whatever he liked. And he said, I'm a circus performer, could I do circus here? And so that afternoon, after this mad scramble to find uh, hula hoops and juggling clubs, we had a dome filled with people from about 10 different nationalities, all speaking multiple languages, everyone learning to juggle and hula hoop together. Our Ethiopian friend stayed teaching almost, I think, every day for a month before he finally moved on from Calais. In the broadest possible sense, the arts can offer people a chance to connect or to work with others to create something, to laugh, to share a song, or to write a story. This is the power of arts and creativity. It, it can inspire us and it can challenge us. Our days in the theatre were all about overcoming language and cultural barriers with moments of human connection through art. The beauty of the jungle was that it was full of these moments, these, these moments of connection, and they, they made the darkness seem more bearable and more humane. Just before Christmas uh, 2015, I'd met a young woman called Helen. She was from Eritrea. She invited me and some other volunteers uh, I was with back to her house. It was this sort of wooden shack, kind of like a garden shed. Someone had built her the house because it had a lockable front door, so it was a safe place for her to sleep at night. Five of us crammed into the tiny space, and it was really dark, and the room was lit with this pale blue uh, LED torch that was taped to the ceiling. She talked as she boiled a pan of water about how happy she was to have her house, about how she'd been trying every night to jump on the back of the trucks to get to the UK. But so far, she said, I've been caught every time. And she roared with laughter as she told us that the same policeman had caught her two nights in a row. She handed around tea and we began to sip it and she started to talk about her life before the jungle, uh, about Eritrea and her journey to Calais. Her story, was the most tragic I've ever heard. And Helen took us from fits of giggles into deep and terrible tears. There was no doubt she was an incredible storyteller. And in the cold, dim light, I found myself coming face to face with everything that was wrong with the world. And it changed me. Helen was 23 years old. She was, had been living in the jungle for about a month, and, that, and she'd heard that England was going to open the border for Christmas. She knew there was a theatre in the jungle, and as she drank her last sip of tea, she declared that while she waited for the border to open, she would like to be an actor and star in a show at Good Chance Theatre. I don't know where Helen is today. I doubt she even knows of the profound impact she had on me. The stories I heard never got easier, but I became a little bit more resilient to these horrors, and mostly, there was always a way to find hope. In total, I probably spent about a year in the jungle. I wasn't there the whole time. At the beginning, I was traveling back and forth to London to work. But there were also times when I was heading to Calais every week. And the longest time I spent there was probably about two months in one stretch. In March 2016, the southern half of the jungle was demolished and evicted by the French authorities. 
The theatre was in this area, and surrounded by tear gas and riot police, we took it down. Over the next couple of months, I, I tried to organise to rebuild the theatre. But the population of the jungle was still swelling, people were still arriving, and space was really of a premium. When we finally thought we had found a place to build, we were stopped by the local authorities. The director of one of the few French charities translated for me. I'm really sorry, you, you're not allowed to do this anymore. You can't build your dome here. Why, I asked. Because they are afraid. And I remember so clearly looking up at him and, and throwing my hands up in exasperation and saying, afraid of a theatre? And he replied, of everything. And it became all too clear to me, in this world of fear and division, the biggest victims are the most vulnerable. We have seen advances in every aspect of our, humanity, uh, of our lives, except for our humanity. How can we fight for humankind when we are so often told to be frightened of it? It feels so easy to slip into despair. But I know things are changing, and people are finding ways to stand up and say, this is not okay. This weekend is a shining and hope-filled example of that. We can actively choose to push aside this perpetual idea of the other that's pumped into us, into us subconsciously on, on a daily basis. And activism doesn't just have to be about protest or, or self-sacrifice. We can fight with compassion and generosity and kindness. With the theatre no longer in the jungle, I wasn't really sure what to do next. I wasn't ready to leave. The act of helping, of course, rewards the helper, and that feeling is addictive. Over my months in the jungle, I had become fascinated with this concept of humanitarian aid, and I wondered how my work fit into this field. An internet search showed me that evidence of creative activity in horrible and dire circumstances wasn't a new concept. Theatre performances are documented in Jewish concentration camps, and, and even the UNHCR, which is the UN's refugee division, have published a report called The Role of Artistic Activities in Refugee Camps. So, why aren't we talking about this more? Why, when we talk of humanitarian aid, do we really only think of two models? We think of emergency relief, uh, water, food, sanitation, or we think of a long-term investment towards sustainability. Why is it when I tell people that I worked in the jungle, generally they applaud me, and when I add the word theatre, I'm sometimes branded as one of those types. When are you too worthless to need or deserve art? Should art only belong to those who can pay for it? In the jungle, I was able to see the power of art. I saw it change the faces of the people I had met. Hussein was a young Iranian man, and he came regularly to the dome. He told me one day, this dome is as important to me as my grandmother's house, and I would defend it with my life. It felt like the work that I was doing, the work that I'd become so interested in, existed in this gap between emergency aid and long-term development. 
there is this human need which exists. And I saw this need in every community space that appeared in the jungle. I saw it in the theater and I saw it in the youth club and the gym and the beauty days at the Women and Children's Center. It is the need to simply be a human being. So I had met some friends who'd started up this other grassroots organization in the jungle. It was called the Refugee Info Bus, and it was a converted horse box that acted as a solar-powered office. It was able to drive on and off camp every day, and it provided legal information and free Wi-Fi. So towards the end of, I think it was about August 2016, I was back in Calais, and I was part of a small team driving a big old horse box around the jungle. Each day, I watched hundreds of people gather around the truck to connect with family and friends on Facebook or WhatsApp or call home on Skype. And the computers that we had inside were always buzzing with people accessing the internet. When you arrive in Greece or Italy, you are pretty much greeted with a Europe which is completely overwhelmed. There is no clear information for new arrivals. And empowering people through providing access to technology is probably one of my most surprising discoveries over the past two years. It was just another example of how powerful it can be to see and treat people as human beings with needs and wants just like you and me. And when you're faced with a situation that's certainly beyond my imagination, when you've been forced to leave your home or flee terror, war, abuse, persecution, the importance of knowledge and connection cannot be underestimated. Each and every one of us hopes to make the best possible life for ourselves. We all need a reason for existence. We need to feel safe and have hopes and dreams. We need to be seen and we need to be heard. And if everything around us is threatened, then that need is stronger than ever. In November last year, I watched the final destruction and eviction of the camp. Over four days, 10,000 people watched their makeshift community be bulldozed, burnt, and destroyed. I sent this message to a friend of mine two days before the eviction began. Lives are literally on the line here. Chaos is everywhere, and no one knows what's going on. There is no information. It's ridiculous. Different languages, religions, and politics, and humanity, they all exist on this strange little camp which is on top of a rubbish dump. It's quite impossible to imagine that such a place exists. But it does. Well, it did. And I think it's incredible. As the jungle is destroyed, I'm going to mourn its loss, despite it being such a horrific place. Is it strange to mourn something you didn't believe should have ever existed at all? So I have been lucky enough to both witness and stand alongside thousands of volunteers who are working hard to change a world that they feel unhappy with, who are fighting fear with food, first aid, sleeping bags, and art. And every moment spent doing has been our way of saying, your life matters to our fellow human beings. We may feel helpless when we look at the world around us, but what I have learned is that I have the choice and the, and the opportunity to embody kindness and compassion in every part of my life. Every interaction I have with someone has a, is the chance to have a positive impact on both of our lives how I respond to someone who might be sleeping on the streets, or even just the way I connect with my neighbors. Each of these is an act of compassion and activism in a world that tells us to firstly think of ourselves, make our country great again, take back control, that's un-Australian. 
I began speaking to you today by declaring I was a kindness warrior. A kindness warrior is not someone who believes in kindness and compassion, but it is someone who is willing to fight for those qualities as well. I am a kindness warrior because each hand I have shaken, cup of tea I have shared, painting I have admired or poem I have listened to have become my acts of resistance against a political system that seems to tell refugees it would be easier if they just disappeared. And my path? Well, it's been my choice. You don't need to choose the same journey to stand up against the fear and hatred in the world. Here we are in Australia, which has its very own refugee crisis. And we don't have to look very far to see suffering and huge need when we talk about Indigenous Australians or suicide rates or violence against women. There are many, many ways you can do something. And you've just got to find the one that's possible for you. You don't need to go and volunteer in Greece for three months. You could just begin by thanking the person that made you your morning coffee. Or you could simply start by becoming more aware of the difficult parts of the world around you. Don't block it out. In 20 minutes or so, we are going to walk out of this room onto the pristine harbour with the view of the harbour bridge and the demands of life are going to slowly creep in. And today's talk might become a distant memory. But we are together here, right now, and I want us to take action. I'm not a politician. I don't know how to lobby or campaign. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not even really that comfortable standing up and talking in front of people but I am a really good organiser and I love theatre and I'm curious about this world and all of the people in it. So with that in mind, I found my way towards my action, even if that involved overcoming a fear of public speaking. So each of you have already made your first kindness warrior action today. You've come here. And now I want you to make a pledge. What will your next action be? What can you do over the next week or so to see a difference in your world. Try to make a pledge that you can achieve, and it, it doesn't have to be big. You, you don't have to make a year-long commitment. When I first went to volunteer in the jungle, I didn't know what was to come. I was simply following this curiosity and a desire to do something, and doing something will look different to each and every one of us, and that is great. That is the Band-Aid that this world needs right now. So before I finish, I want to celebrate one last thing. The echo, ch echo chamber, the bubble that we exist within, where news and stories are catered to our own political views, and, and without realising it, we develop this sort of tunnel vision. This echo chamber is disparaged on all sides, and I agree, we need to look out, outside ourselves and in, invest in dialogue and discussion and have difficult conversations. But I will be the first to tell you that I have needed the support and the rallying cry of this echo chamber in some of my more darker moments. I've really relied on others to support me and inspire me, and I've reveled in angry conversations about the injustices of the world. And I want, just like everyone, I think, in this room today who believes in equality, compassion and kindness, to find ways to connect and work together. So that pledge that you just made, let's just make that the beginning of the conversation. Let's, let's keep talking. Let's use social media. Use the hashtag, kindnesswarrior. Tweet me with your best act. Find me afterwards. Tell me about what you're going to do. 
Let's share and let's inspire and even remind each other that we can change the world. I want to leave you with one final quote which has inspired me, and it's a quote from a cultural anthropologist named Margaret Mead who said in 1960, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. Fantastic, fantastic. We're going to go to questions from the audience in a minute, but I have a question, first of all. Um, Kirsten, I think it's... Um, easy for us all to look around the world and see that a lack of compassion is at the root of everything that seems wrong. And most of us, and particularly people in this room today, would feel that we are compassionate people. And yet, it's, it's the, the <laughs> compassion deficit is all around us. What are the obstructions to humans being compassionate? What do you see are the greatest barriers? Um, I think people... I think it comes back to this other and the fact that we've, we're so we're told all the time to, that other people are bad. And I was having this conversation, I think, just in the last few days about kind of our, our, our tribal backgrounds and protecting ourselves. And I think we sort of... Sometimes we have to actively pursue compassion. And, and that's not a bad thing. I, I, mm. I know I've done things which maybe are not... I'm not a saint. No one is. But it's just to kind of keep checking ourselves and saying, is this the most compassionate thing or am I passing a judgment too quickly? I think, I think we have to check ourselves. Mm. And, and make a choice, I guess, yeah. and actually decide it's something. Because I, I think it's uh, one of those things that people think oh, it's, a, it's a trait that some people have, some people are more empathetic than others, but to actually understand it's something you can choose to act yeah. on is actually something that is the difference between being passive yeah. and actually taking action. Yeah. And I think, well, I hope what people got from what I was talking about is, is choosing to take action is you have to actively do it. It doesn't just mm. happen. Um, but it doesn't have to be big and scary. It can be something little. And, I, and if, I, I do feel if everyone chose to do some little things, maybe the world might change. Busyness is the other thing that everyone <laughs> who have, you know, We've all got busy lives. We yeah. think, do we have time to... I was thinking when you were putting this up, I want to go and see my neighbour who's recovering from an operation. And every day I think, oh, I haven't had time today. But yeah. I'm, I've made my pledge to myself <laughs> to do that. I think, yeah, we, and it's about priority, isn't it? Priorities, because mm. we, can, we, we can choose what we need to prioritise. And I, I also am bad at being like, I'm too busy, I didn't do that, I forgot mm. this. And I, it's... I don't think we can beat ourselves up about it. it it's just being aware and, and, and trying. How did you... You said you had to dig deep to keep on hold of your optimism. And how did you look after yourself in that situation when you were there in, in, in the midst of all of this suffering and keep your head above water? Um, it's, <laughs> it's a good question and I think it's really difficult and I don't think I always nailed it. Mm. Um, but I had... Uh, I had a good, a good group of friends back in London. Um, I mean, I, I spoke about... I, I travelled back and forth a bit because I was doing a bit of work in London, but 
sometimes leaving and being with my best friends in London and just sitting there and watching crap TV <laughs> was mm. what I needed. I tried to really listen to what I needed and, and also just recognise it's okay to be a bit down about it. It's, it's okay, but find ways of wrapping yourself up in a, in a doona if you need to. Mm. Um, and also I think when I was in the jungle, uh, I was often in a situation where I was leading um, teams of people or, or kind of organising teams of people. And that's where I sort of felt quite... I felt quite confident and comfortable in that role. But it did mean, like, a lot of people lent on me for support and I didn't have that person to lean on for support. Mm. So I, I don't think I ever... I, it was really difficult and I, I don't think I always got it right, but I did the best that I could and I found little ways and whether that was... And, and finding... When, when you hear these horrific stories, I, I think I mentioned it, finding hope together with that person who shared that. So, mm. OK, let's, let's, let's draw a picture of what you've just talked about or why don't you write a song or sing something to me and, and finishing things with, with hopefulness, mm. it sort of puts a little bit of a Band-Aid on it. Sure. I'm really interested in that moment of shame that you felt on the train <laughs> yeah. coming across when you were saying, I'm going to work in the theatre, <laughs> in the jungle. Um, what do you think's behind that? Well, it was, it was so strange when I felt that because I, I'd been doing work in, well, theatre work with people that it, most people are like, why are you doing theatre in a prison? And I was really shocked. And I think it was because I was apprehensive about what I was going to. I didn't know what I was going to go into and and I remember this guy he was really like he was painting a really complicated sort of picture of how people had nothing and that there was no toilets and like they really need you know this and I think the the local authorities had just put in water points for people mm. um, and I just felt like I had to question like what what am I doing if people don't have food to eat when when does the, when does art and that when does that come into it um, but I think it was an important thing to question because it's kind of one of the things I get asked the most, like, why theatre in, in a refugee mm. camp? And I'm sort of glad that I had questioned myself about it as well. Yeah. You talked about um, human connection through creativity, but it seems to go deeper than that, doesn't it, uh, to be something that's incredibly good for the soul. And yep. you've been working in this area with people who don't have access to, to art. What do they say to you is the thing that, that reaches them deep inside when they're acting or writing or storytelling? I think it's, it's a very human trait to tell stories. And it's sort of what we are as human beings. We're storytellers. Even in our everyday lives, when we meet friends, we tell stories about things that have happened. So it's a very basic human thing. And when you're participating in that, if it's facilitated in a, in a theatre situation, then it's kind of like one of your basic humanness. Mm. You, you're suddenly a human being. You're not in a line waiting for some food that may or may not come. And, mm. and not you're... Not just a number. Yeah, mm. you're not mm. just a number or a sort of faceless figure. Mm. Um, yeah. It was extraordinary to see the photos of... And I urge everyone to have a look at the website uh, for the Good Chance Theatre. There are some videos on there that yeah. will really, really touch you. But to see the images of Shakespeare actors um, <laughs> performing Hamlet in the middle of all of this. We're going to go to some audience questions now. Who has... You broke my heart during some of what you said. But there are two questions. Uh, you talk of creativity 
but only one aspect of creativity, the art side of it. Mm. Creativity is also thinking, it's finding solutions, and uh, it would interest me very much, uh, is that sort of creativity worthwhile encouraging developing in uh, these refugees? But the other one which really got me, you talked of the police brutality. Was that official policy of France? Or was it just the policy of the uh, city of Calais? Uh, and it reminded me at the moment of what we're experiencing with Dutton and our own mm. uh, asylum seekers. So Thank if you could give us two answers, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you, sir. Two, two for one. <laughs> uh, Look, I, I feel slightly uncomfortable about answering about the policy of France or Calais. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm not a politician, but France is in a very complicated place at the moment. They're, they're still in a state of emergency. Um, I, think that, I think that went in, came into play after the attack happened in Nice. Um, but because they're in this state of emergency, there's a lot of... Uh, my understanding is there's a lot of laws uh, and, and ways of protecting that, one of them which is people, too many people can't gather in one place, um, people can't do, so, so the jungle was that, so it was this sort of slightly grey area. Um, also I think the police, it's, it's difficult to talk about because I, I, I didn't speak to many policemen, <laughs> but um, they were in a situation where this weird illegal camp was happening and every night people were trying to get on lorries and they were trying to get them off and the local people were complaining and really unhappy with the situation, understandably. I mean, it was, it's really, I, it's very difficult to talk about because it's so complicated and, and I, I do have some empathy with some of the police, not all of them. Uh, they, they were told, they were militarised police that were brought in, they weren't local policemen, and they came from all over France. I remember them coming, they came in big busloads, and we would see them sitting in the restaurants in, in Calais, eating together, and they'd stay together in the hotels. So they were brought in, and they were just told to, they were told to do different things all the time. Um, that doesn't excuse the brutality. I, I guess I'm just trying to paint this picture of how complicated this situation was. Um, and France and England didn't want it to be there. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but it, I can't answer in, in terms of policy, but it, it did happen and that's what I saw. Uh, what was the first question again? The first part was about um, creativity. Uh, yes, and definitely. I mean, I, I focused on creativity in terms of theatre because that's what I did. Um, but <laughs> I think in any situation, it doesn't just have to be people who are uh, living in a refugee camp, but people are innately creative and, and enabling that and um, finding ways to use that, whether it's to make art, and by art I mean everything creative, so whether that be theatre or painting or whatever, uh, or, or ways of existing in the world. I mean, I... I'm not an artist, I'm a producer, but working in Calais, I've never had to be more creative of thinking how I can do things or how we can work or when this situation, how do, how do we make this happen? And um, so I, I, think it's, I think creativity is 
is really wide, widespread. It's in every part of yeah, what we yeah, do. Yeah, oh, it yeah. should be. It should be. <laughs> if, it, if it was, it would, the world might be a better place. Number three. Um, I, like the gentleman over here, was fighting back the tears through most of what you were saying, and I uh, really appreciate your story. And I was just wondering, as a layperson like yourself, who's not a politician and haven't been to a refugee camp like that, what would you suggest to be like a policy for refugee camps? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying really hard to stay away from all politics. <laughs> sorry, um, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look. I, I do understand why you asked that, and I'm, I'm not going to properly answer it. So <laughs> maybe we can have this conversation later. But the reason I try and stay away from it is because I, I'm not equipped with all of, all of the political knowledge. But what I am equipped with is, is being a human being. And, and I think what I found in, in Calais was, regardless of what you think about whether people should be let in or not, or you know, taking all that away for one minute, that, there is no way people should be living in that situation. And, he, like, and, and that's, I'm speaking about Calais, but of course I'm speaking about the rest of the world and what's going on in Australia. And people should never, ever, ever have to live like that. Um, and I find that completely unacceptable. So putting aside whatever you think about whether people should or shouldn't do stuff, I, that's, that's one thing that I think we need to, to change. And I think, yeah, and the frustration that so many people feel, uh, you talk about I'm a human being, that we often feel that our policymakers are less than human uh, yeah. with some of the policies that um, are happening, particularly in this country. Number one. Hey, Kirsten. Oh, you, hey, Kirsten. oh hi. Hey, it's uh, Sarah. Oh, hi. How's it going? <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask what was next for you. Do you know what you're going to do next? Um, well, I, so I, I, I still work freelance in the arts, and at the moment I'm actually working with a theatre company that I met in the jungle. <laughs> um, they're called Belarus Free Theatre, and they, um, it's been an interesting progression. We were talking about this earlier because they are, it's run by three political refugees who live in the UK. Um, they were smuggled out of Belarus, which is... I mean, it's another whole story, but essentially that's the sort of last uh, European dictatorship that exists, and they made art that was anti-government um, and theatre that was anti-government. So now they, are, they run their operation from the UK, um, and they have an underground company of actors in Belarus that performed underground to audiences that find out what's going on via text message. So they came down to the jungle to do some work and I met them and, I, uh, and now I'm working with them for the next couple of months. So that, that's been a nice little link up. That's incredibly dangerous, what they're doing. Yeah. Mm, mm. I'm just in the UK office. Like. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> did you feel in danger when you were in the jungle? Did you, did you feel safe? Um, I I don't, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a safe place. Mm. Um, I, I think you have to... It was a little bit like when, if you travel and you go to places that are not Western countries, you don't just wander around down the busy slums and think, oh, yeah, it's all fine. Mm. I think you have to be aware. I, I never felt like I was... I was completely in danger. I just felt like I had to be aware of, of the situation. And of, and of course, it's a volatile place and make sensible decisions. So when things happened, you leave and you choose to do that and not um, stay involved. 
And I walked around by myself, mm. um, but I then also, I wouldn't be there in the night. So you make choices to kind of protect yourself. Mm. Hello. Um, I, so I've previously volunteered in the jungle as well, but I was kind of, one thing that I found really difficult um, in terms of like being kindness warriors and all of us working together, which I completely agree with, um, what's also difficult I found was kind of working not just there, but also in other places when you're volunteering, but you have internal politics with both different NGOs and different charities. And like, what was your experience of that with the Good Chance Theatre and how did you manage that, if you experienced it at all? Um, what, what was the first question again? Like, how did you manage the kind of voyeurism side of oh, yeah. people coming? Um, I'll try and talk quite quickly, because I know we probably don't have much time. Uh, but more. yes, I think that's, uh, that the terrible part of the jungle was that it was illegal and anyone, uh, it, was, it wasn't official. Anyone could walk in there and do whatever they wanted. So of course bad people, or people with maybe different intentions came to do things. But it also, because it had no sort of structure, it allowed amazing things to happen. And mm. I think a lot of the, the organisations that are now registered charities, so like the um, Infobus that I worked with and, and like Good Chance, that didn't start by being like off a charity full of paperwork and filling out forms. It was just like, oh, let's do this. Oh, okay, we should probably register as a charity. And I think that's quite amazing. And um, there's, a, there's, a big, there's a couple of big charities that are still you know, operating. There's one called Help Refugees, which now works across the all of Europe, and I think they're in Lebanon and Syria as well. I mean, it's, it allowed this incredible thing to happen. So, yes, complicated because not great stuff can go on, but also I think we have to celebrate what, is a, what came out of that. Um, let's have a longer conversation about that because <laughs> it is a good question. Just one more quick question, please. Um, I, mine was actually um, piggybacking on the back of that one because I'm interested in community building. So it sounded like when you first showed up, it wasn't with... Uh, you didn't do research and pick the, an organization that you that was already established and you were with um, that was big. It, it sounded like maybe you started with something small. And I was wondering, how would you go about suggesting people um, interact with these situations in terms of community? Do you start with some some established organization? Do you go by yourself and try to lead the way and build something around you? And then how do you juggle the community that you surround yourself with to help these people, with the community that you need to support you? I think, yeah, well, I, I really think you need to like look at yourself and decide what your strengths are. I mean, if we were all leaders, we wouldn't ever get anything done. We need people who are like, yep, I want to get involved with mm. what you're doing, and I want to support you and do that. Um, so so we, need every, we need people doing both things. And I think... I think I, I talked about that a little bit. Like, I looked at myself and was like, what, what do I have that could impact this situation? So I think it's both. I don't, I don't know if that's the answer that you want to hear, but you, I think first you have to look at yourself. And I think when you're going to volunteer, find things that you're good at and that you care about because it will give back so much more to you as well. And, and if that is starting your own thing or you see a gap and you want to start something, then do it. But at the same time, just because you don't see a gap or don't know how to start something doesn't mean you can't do something. Remember your pledges. Yes. And make, and make time for your pledges. <laughs> Everybody, would you please thank Kirsten Sherling for a wonderful talk today. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. That was Kirsten Sherling on the ways that theatre, art and storytelling can embody activism. She was at Antidote 2017. And if you like this podcast, we'll be dropping another live recording from Antidote next week.
Coming up, we have political writer Shashi Tharoor, how to create chaos online and how we can get justice for our planet. You can subscribe to Ideas at the House and other Sydney Opera House podcasts on your favourite podcast app. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.